Welcome to the Opening Up Podcast. I'm Jordan Salcido, founder of Drink Ramona, organic wine and spritzes, and a veteran of the restaurant and wine industry. My guest today, who I'm so excited to be speaking with, is Mark Ladner, currently the culinary director at Moby's in Amagansett, and formerly chef partner at Lupa Del Posto and Oto Pizzeria, as well as the co-founder of Pasta Flyer. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, so we're actually in person today, wearing masks, of course, but this is the first in-person podcast we've been able to have um, since we began. So very, very exciting on, on that front as well. And when when I think of Mark, whom I've known now for many years, Mark is actually very intertwined with the story of my of, of my falling in love with, with my husband, uh, my now husband of 12 years. But um, Mark was the chef at Lupa when I met him, and it was at Lupa, and I remember this was, I bring this up because it was such an important moment in my life, but it was the night that I knew that I had fallen in love with with Robert, and you had you had cooked this delicious meal. Uh, it was, I remember I had ordered the Amatriciana, which was delicious and probably the best in, in the country. I don't think anyone would dispute that. Um, and uh, we were drinking a bottle of Rinaldi Barolo 1990 with the Brunate Lacoste, uh, which is not an everyday wine by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it was a special evening. And, um, and I remember that you came to the bar, uh, or it was after, after, your, after service had ended and, and you were sitting actually with Mario Batali and you guys were having this, ar- this argument and it was about pasta. It was about Cacio e Pepe. And I don't know if you remember this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and it went on for hours. <laughs> like many, many hours. In fact, Robert had to end You're up... Both very food. passionate arguments. But it was so amazing because that, that was like little did I know that I would you know, ever have a conversation with you ever again. But I was, I think, a culinary student at the time. But I remember listening to you and you had added Meyer lemon zest to this recipe and it was this four-hour argument. <laughs> um, well, we were, back then, I mean, we were so, so focused on traditional authenticity. So um, there wasn't much room for, you know, interpretation in the early aughts, um, which obviously has changed so much in our culture. Can you speak a little bit about your, I, I, I mean, I would love to delve into your career. How, how did you start? You're from Cambridge. I'm from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, a small town next door called Belmont. And I spent my formative years uh, skating and causing trouble in Harvard Square. And that's where I fell into restaurants and pizzerias. Then eventually I went on to culinary school, but um, I realized I wanted to make the restaurant industry my career at a very young age. And... What was your first restaurant job like? I was like a sort of a mom and pop American or maybe even New York style slice sort of proposition with like sandwiches, pizza, gigantic floppy plates, (laughs) obscenely overcooked pasta. Um, And that is not what you were cooking when when you started to over when you when I met you. So, what was your process uh, like? Well, I mean, I, I went to culinary school. I didn't spend much time in school. I was more focused on uh, working in kitchens outside of school. 
um, at, you know, at the same time to support myself, so on and so forth. And then uh, one, one really pivotal moment was I, I left uh, culinary school, moved back to Boston to work uh, for a chef by the name of Todd English, mm-hmm. who had a restaurant called Olives at the time. So this was the very early 90s. And it was, uh, in, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest restaurants, uh, American restaurants, or restaurants in America at that time. It was a, it was a 30 seat, like dinner only restaurant that was only open five nights a week. It was full of superstars, and the food was incredibly inspired and way ahead of its time. And it was really a, a pivotal sort of inspiration, a touch point for the rest of the sort of trajectory that my career took. Can you that. speak a little bit about that restaurant? I, I never um, to So, it. I mean, Todd English is uh, someone, obviously, that's been around for a long time. He, he uh, Incidentally, one uh, rising star chef the very first year that the James Beard Foundation had its awards. Oh. Um, and he then became more of a titan of, I guess, expansion and you know, management deal-based business operations. Today, I, I think it would be safe to say that he's, his talents are sort of marginalized. I, in fact, one time uh, was at an early, in the mid-90s, I was at Le Cool Basque drinking wine after service with uh, Jean-Jacques Rechut. And he actually told me, which shocked me at the time, that he had thought that Todd was the best cook that had ever gone through that kitchen. Wow. Which is um, pretty stunning considering some of the people that had gone through whatever it's, 35 Run. This is New York, not Boston. In New York, yeah. Um, uh, people, including like uh, David Boulay and Daniel Wow. And people wow. Like that. Um, which uh, is pretty pretty stunning uh, admission on his part. Uh, that is a stunning admission, and you are no. I, I guess when you and I in previous conversations, your trajectory, I mean, the, the chefs that you've cooked alongside and, and you went up through the ranks with sure. um, are also all of the, the, bold, the boldest face names. Some, some of them. I mean, really my mentor after I moved from Boston to New York was this gentleman by the name of Scott Bryan, who I believe you were very for a time, which is the first time <laughs> I actually met you. Um, and, you know, there's that famous chapter in Kitchen Confidential, uh, all about Scott and how he's like a, he's very much a cook's cook, mm-hmm. and uh, I very much enjoyed working with him. We it was very small, tight restaurants that we basically were like two person line. Um, so I was working next to him for over three years. Um, so that was really really pivotal for me, and then uh, working with John George and also. Who's a huge fan of all these, by the way? Really? He, come, he has a standing Saturday night reservation. I think he probably came seven or eight times this summer. It was sort of amazing how, how quickly everyone, like, the second that people realized you were cooking at Moby's, is the second that that was the only place everyone Well, I don't go. think it's just that. I think, you know, due to COVID and all the other no. restrictions, like, it was just not. 
it was a physical space that made you know hanging out somewhat normalized which had a lot to do with it it was i mean the backyard was amazing the vibe, the the vibe but the, vibe. the movie's vibe is great but it's it's also really hard to have a great vibe and also great food and and i, well, I mean it takes it takes a village there are a lot of people working but the, the food was the food was excellent and, and we got to go a few times when we were yeah yeah so your your early formative cooking years were in French kitchens. Um, well, when I moved to New York in 1993, uh, especially having come from Olives, which was very Italianish, rustic, before that that was a genre. When I moved to New York, it was still very very francophile. Um, even the American cooks were all singularly focused on you know, French techniques. Took quite quite a while. I mean, the better part of a decade before it started to relax in New York. So I got to witness, obviously, all of, all of that. Like, what what would you say? I mean, and, and I remember I moved to New York in two thousand five, and and it was it still felt that way. The to Post me. was open in two thousand five. Did it really? The Post opened in two thousand five, yeah. and I, so you had just been transitioning out of Lupa, probably when I met you. Yeah. Okay, and and that was the restaurant where Italian food was given the same uh, reverence. And I mean, I don't know about that. It was it was maybe the one of the first places in New York that focused on regional Italian cuisine that um, that celebrated a more uh, affordable price point mm -hmm. where there was diligent process happening. And certainly Robert had a lot to do with that as well. I mean, the wine program, especially at that price point. I remember when we opened, it was like 100 wines under $100. Okay. Or maybe even less, maybe under $50. And there were certain clients that would come in and be like, oh, do you this have anything? Yeah. Lupa. Yeah. Yep. I remember someone coming in, a regular coming in and being like, um, do you have anything in, you know, the $75? Strange, like this certain, certain type of performing wine, and Robert was like, um, "Oh, I'm sorry, everything's gone through that." My suggestion to you is to get some <laughs> some more expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then it started to evolve, and it, he never looked back. No, he certainly <laughs> didn't. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a, well, he was slumming it. <laughs> no, I didn't know him in those years. <laughs> he was <slumped. laughs> So, all right, so you opened Lupa, and Lupa had a magical, I mean, everyone knew about Lupa, anyone who, I, and one of those things, you never know. And what was your process like in creating that? Because to your point, this is one of the, the first restaurants where the same kind of process behind the scenes was well, one, one really interesting story is that, you know, so I had been this opening sous chef of uh, Babo for the first year it was open, and then um, I had a long friendship with uh, Jason Denton, who was a partner at the time, who had been the manager at Poe, which was Marin's restaurant prior to Babo. And uh, we actually uh, took over the restaurant, or took over the lease um, from someone uh, that Jason and I were friends with, and I had actually opened that restaurant as well, so it was strange. What was it called? It was called Liam. Okay. Um, and it, it, was, it was quite 
it's quite special. It was funny because when I left that restaurant to go to Jean George, Paul Lebron actually took my job. Wow. Fresh off the boat. Wow. <laughs> that was like a strange thing. I could I starved in his kitchen for like three days actually. He's 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 so talented. He's brilliant. Brilliant. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> um, but Mario, so just prior to opening, just prior to the trip that Robert and I took to, to Lazio uh, before it opened together, um, Mario suffered this like massive brain aneurysm at uh, Jason's wedding, which we were all we were all cooking. So during the opening of Lupa, you know, I was I was hoping to have this tutelage from Mario, but he, I never knew that. Is that so discussed ever? I kind of got thrown into it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you tell me about the trip to Lazio? Um, we, yeah, I mean, Robert was. And this is Robert Bohr, who is Robert also my Bohr. husband, but not at the time. Yeah, he was, uh, he was quite, quite a hot shot at the time, or so we thought. Um, <laughs> not, not to suggest that he wasn't. Um, he was certainly a little bit <laughs> um, And uh, we were, uh, I mean, I don't know if he was, but it was my first trip to Italy. And it was just prior to opening. And uh, let's see what happened. Uh, we spent a bunch of time with this woman, Paola Imaldo, who was sort of like the Julia Child of Latin cuisine. How did you meet her? There wasn't Google. Um, this is through uh, Mario and Joe, which uh, essentially met Lydia at that, at that time. So she was a friend of Lydia's. And I guess her sons had a restaurant in Rome, but she had this, this beautiful property like outside, um, just under the Pope's summer residence. That's <laughs> and amazing. Outside of Lazio, and she, had, she was a winemaker as well. So she, at that point, she Primarily focused on wine. Um, so we spent some time with her and we just like, you know, ate around and tried to absorb as much culture as we could. And tried to keep Robert out of trouble and keep from starting fights. <laughs> He's from New Jersey and oh, I know. that was a part of his culture back then. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. He, um, the he was very young too. He was only 24, 25. <sighs> he must have been horribly annoying. Oh, he was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but fun too. Yes, he's always fun. There's always a, a trail of dead <laughs> left in his wake. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was fun, and it was so long ago, and things just are so much different. So you started with Paula, and yeah. and was so. I guess another thing that I'd, I'd love to make sure we spend time discussing because it's so much a part of how I think. I mean, your identity as like the person who knows pasta or one of a handful in the country. Uh, several handfuls. A handful. <laughs> and and Lupa really, and to your point, or, you know, and, and just to Reputation's point, your pasta at Lupa really uh, elevated pasta beyond something that was, you know, a, a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs sort of in a family style place, yeah. but like bringing yeah. culture to America through these dishes. Well, I, I mean, I was given direction by Mario and Joe at the time that they wanted to exclusively focus on, on the cuisine of Lazio mm -hmm. uh, in Rome specifically. So 
um, you know, I sort of went down the rabbit hole. And because I wasn't Italian, didn't speak Italian, hadn't spent any time in Italy, I, I really did have this inferiority complex that mm -hmm. drove me to sort of deeply research yeah. and try to uh, understand it through sort of this New York prism. And I think really that ultimately the thing that sort of allowed the pasta there to stand out is that we were focusing primarily on dry pasta and we were cooking everything to order, which was quite uh, a commitment of time because prior to that, I don't remember very many places, you know, taking pasta directly from the box to the plate without, you know, having pre-cooked it to some degree. Can you speak about, well, in your mind, what is the, what is the main difference, or when would one use a dry pasta versus a freshly made pasta? So, I mean, historically, it comes down, I mean, it's always, primarily socioeconomic, right? But also in Italy, it has to do with um, geography, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the cutoff uh, between fresh and dry has a lot to do with uh, GDP, but also the North having access to you know, giant cows and butter excessive eggs and yolks, whereas in the South, um, it's poorer. it tends to be poor, and it's more of just a flower and water thing, and then, and then obviously access to sun, where you can dry pasta. Right. So, like the Po River, you know, Delta, in is sort of the bread basket of, of Italy, there is an excess of you know, milk, uh, Parmesan grand jam being the best example. Um, and then also lard and then fresh pasta that has the richness and the silkiness that you get from um, an obscene amount of enriched egg yolk. Um, and, then, and then Lazio being sort of the cutoff where Historically, they some of their pastas are fresh and some are, but primarily they're dry. So like um, Amatriciana and Carbonara and Cacio e Pepe. I mean, sometimes you see Cacio e Pepe with Tonarelli, which is like a, like a kinky, like fresh pasta, but it's also um, commonly found with, with dry pasta as well. And so that is really the, the root of whether or not a region is using fresh versus dried pasta has nothing to do with one being better than the other. No, no, they're completely different. A function of what was available yeah. and what was affordable to Right, but there's also, I mean, there's a lot of history surrounding, um, like, the, the pairings mm -hmm. of, of certain shapes and strings and noodles and things going with certain sauces. Um, but they're, they're also all interpretive and it had become increasingly so. Um, but in 2000, in New York, they, they weren't. Like, I would have to basically be grilled by Florence Fabricant as to why I had chosen this, that, or the other thing, because she knew much better than I. And that was a thing which, which no longer exists. 
where there was one sort of voice of well, authenticity was like a really, really big thing back then. Like in order to be a great chef in New York, you had to have mastered cuisine from somewhere else yeah. because American cuisine wasn't wasn't um, exalted and it hadn't been really recognized as something that you could focus a career on. Do you think we're going back to that? Like when I think of you, absolutely not. Really, I think there's absolutely no, there's no rules at all. Right. I think you can really put anything on a plate. And I, I mean, you and I spoke, have spoken about this uh, before, too, is that, the, you know, I really feel that the, that the American collective palate has, has changed in the last uh, several years. And the way that you and I came up with the idea of balance and, subjectivity and objectivity of, of flavor has uh, significantly changed um, to where, you know, unless you and I are, are spending a lot of energy educating ourselves on this new paradigm, like we're literally falling behind. And I love that you brought this up. And this is something that right, we've, we've spent time talking about in terms of like, Right, understanding quality and, and what does that mean? And to your point about, um, which is such an interesting thing, I, I remember yeah, when I when I moved to New York, I wanted to work at Danielle and start to you know, wrap my head around understanding this classical cuisine. The first place that I worked was WD Fifty, which was sort of throwing these rules out the window. Completely, with, especially then. Especially, I mean, that was quite a while. Especially then, but with such a, a firm understanding. Wiley mm -hmm. had worked at Jean George for ten years, and and understood understood the rules enough to know what yeah, to yeah. break. No question. And I guess when I think about your food at Lupa, which was how I was introduced to your food, then your food at Del Posto, now your food at Moby's, there is still such authenticity to it. And there's this through line of it's sort of in the way that I feel like wine does, where it can transport you to a place. Your food does that. It still takes you. Well, that's incredibly flattering. It's the truth. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know. I mean, Similar to you, I'm sure, in the way that you assess uh, flavor and quality of wine, <clears throat> the best example I can I can give is there's this one uh, condiment that I make called tomato marmalade, which is a marmalade of, of tomato. And there was this uh, there's this book that uh, became sort of my bible because I, I don't speak Italian, so I was trying to do in the early days, descriptive copy for menus and stuff, and wanted to get the conjugation proper and things like that. I would refer to this, and the, the definition under marmilata said that it should um, be in balance to the point where you're balancing basically, you know, sweetness, saltiness, and sourness, and spice, you know, umami in such a way that you can taste them all, but not one is more prominent than the other. So I've always sort of relied on that as a ballast for trying to create, you know, food that is compelling and sort of like hits all these, these touch points 
without over overwhelming. Although I do really like salty food, and I also like sweet food, and I also like spicy food. Um, but you know, you're trying to appeal to a broader demographic than just that. But currently, like that is not the the trend in 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 natural wine or in new age uh, cuisine at all. Do you think it's shifted from a, a prioritizing flavor profile to prioritizing value system? I think it has more to do with ideology mm-hmm. and focusing on the story more so than the balance of the flavor. Product. Yeah. It's so interesting. Well, and it also makes me wonder if flavor profiles are like how how do we assess deliciousness? Yeah. And how do we define that and who gets Well again it's subjective and, and not objective, right? It and, is. And if you don't have a basis for objectivity, like kind of swinging in the wind, but but people are being rewarded for that. And that just sends everything topsy turvy. <laughs> Which is what old people like us are. No, 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 no offense, George. No, I, I, it sends I, us reeling because. Not like, a young chicken. Where, where, where are we? Well, it's really interesting, and, and part of it is that right, like understanding where we came from. But I think, I guess, more and more and more, as I look, and I, I, I don't know if this is what's happening, but I feel like I've had enough conversations with with people here and there where it's like. It's almost like we've swung so far in this direction from like going from what you're talking about, mentoring with Paula and exactly the right technique for something as specific as pasta in Lazio to like getting anything you want anytime at a grocery store where authenticity has and just mashing it together because you think it's interesting as a cerebral exercise. Yes, right. Interesting as a cerebral exercise, and uh, but then at the end of the day, like there's there's still um, it, subjectivity is important because then that that is what drives consumer behavior and consumer interest, and we all want to enjoy something that we think is delicious. But 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 the story, and I guess this is like a thing that I think a lot about, like how important is the story, and I feel like story is so important because it does communicate value system to your point about like like lupa's pasta and which i i really want to dive into a little bit more because i want to make sure we talk about pasta flyer and which was your company along with nastasia that you founded so nastasia lopez and and you guys founded this company which was so genius which was the idea that no one should have <clears throat> or have to have bad pasta and that great pasta could be achievable in how long did it take to cook a ball it was about 30 seconds yeah that's insane but it was it was also like you know economically accessible it was, it was very inexpensive it was i mean pastas were like between seven and nine dollars it took about 30 seconds and it was of the quality that Basically, that I'm only capable of producing. Meaning, um, you're not going to trade um, down on what you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so so I figured out some shortcuts through science and extensive research and years and years of development. Um, but um, it was mostly about you know coming from a, a 
a four-star restaurant that was like, it was a commitment of like several hundreds of dollars per person um, with this enormous team. And then trying to like uh, distill a lot of the principles of quality to something that was more affordable and more accessible, but also um, celebrating nourishment and uh, and sustenance as like a like a pivotal focal point. Can we talk a little bit about nourishment? What do you mean by that? Like food that makes you feel satiated without polluting your body. Yes, which is so hard to do these days. It can be, yeah. Well, and it's something that... It's, it's actually better now because, like, for example, like we have uh, friends in the restaurant community worldwide that over the last decade or so have focused so much more on prevention naturally occurring mommy and fermentation that mm -hmm. like adds depth and so much flavor to food without without fat. Right. Because prior to that, it was always just salt and fat. Butter and then you would cut it with acid. And yeah. That's how you achieved everything. Yeah. But now there's all these other, like, in many cases, ancient forms of fermentation that adds so much zhuzh yeah. to the equation um, that are so interesting. I mean, I think of this with Ramona all the time, where it's like, right, you don't need to. And I guess one thing that's like interesting to me is like when we made our test batch, we made it in the, in the United States, and then we quickly moved it to Italy right at, right away because in the U.S. we were being told that we needed to add, um, wow. yeah, velcarin, which is a neurotoxin, in the first twenty four hours. And nobody tells you what it is, and it actually has to be administered with a hand. Yeah, with a hazmat suit, and then it breaks down to inert gases within 20 or after 24 hours. But the fact that it exists and has to be administered with a hazmat suit was very much the antithesis of the entire yeah. point of it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember saying, like, what is it? Why have I never heard of this? Why is this not disclosed anywhere? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be disclosed because supposedly it breaks down to inert gases. Yeah. But the fact that it's a neuro, like, why versus in Italy, we just pasteurize. That is something that I've seen. Um, in fact, I learned recently that it's the same with swimming pools. Like, um, you know, like in the U.S., the chemical lobby is so strong that we clean our pools with um, chlorine and other chemicals versus Europe, where it's just this infrared light, and it accomplishes the same thing without. Uh, yeah. That's so, that's so Yes, which is like disturbing. People just like blindly follow these rules without yeah, questioning them. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Well, all right. So, and when we talk about quality and, and when we talk about Italy, so I'd love your thoughts on this. And actually, I feel like I've become a much more opinionated pasta consumer because of Robert, who, who grew up in your kitchen from a career standpoint. <laughs> And, and really is an excellent cook, which we, which yeah. I learned. I mean, I always knew he was a very competent cook, but he's yeah. an excellent cook, especially of things that he loves, like pasta and uh, like olives and cheese, <laughs> all the things he mustard <laughs> and legumes. <laughs> which I will say, you like. Sometimes it's not as fun to cook for him. Sometimes oh, he, he and I will get into. 
Not argue. We can't possibly remember this laundry list of items. So I was like, you better off just like <laughs> But the things that he loves, he really loves, and yeah. he is a he's so good at assessing quality within that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was through him that I learned of uh, Monograno pasta yeah. because it's available for sale at a couple of spots, and so we started. That was all the pasta we used to pasta flour. So was, this is something you told me. Tell me what? Why is it great? What? It, what makes it great? Well, I spent a lot of time with uh, Ricardo Felicetti okay. um, from Felicetti, which is in Guadalajara. Okay. And uh, so fresh I went pasta. To the factory. No, it's it's dry pasta. Okay. Um, and they were um, they were specifically sourcing all of their grain um, from different places. For example, there's one uh, that's called Matt, which is uh, a desert uh, Durham wheat in Arizona that was named after scientists' son, so on and so forth. But it's a specific. So so most. The, the strange thing economically is that most of the great flour that's produced in the world is from either Arizona, but in very small quantities, but otherwise Arizona. from the Dakotas, okay. well, because the desert, or from uh, the Dakotas, or from parts of sort of southern Canada. Huh. So all of that wheat gets flown to Italy to produce the pasta to get flown back. To us, um, they do create uh, grow great wheat in Italy, but uh, agriculturally, uh, compared to the demand, they just they simply don't have access to enough. It's so interesting because one of the reasons, another of the reasons why we've we've kept all of our production in Italy is because of um, since 2016 they've banned glyphosates in any any pre harvest. Um, Production or yes, yeah. so it's it's um it's basically Roundup is a, okay, it's, yeah. which yeah. which and they're like very like this is a generalization, but in effect, I mean it it is created by Monsanto and it is a variant of Agent Orange, like a slight variant, but it's created by Monsanto and then was popularized in the seventies for farmers and then the eighties for like home home gardeners and yeah. lawn growers. For weeds, exactly. And the bricks coming. Yeah, and then yeah. there is an argument that makes a lot of sense to me, where it's like you can track the use of Roundup and glyphosates and the spike in cancer, sure. and it's very directly correlated. Right, everything from cancer to infertility and just yeah. you know, the things that now are very commonplace to us. That even like everyone I know has, or not everyone I know, but many many people have rare cases of cancer that 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 are supposedly so rare, and yet this seems much more common, and then it's sort of like, right, why is this happening? And Anyway, so glyphosates are water-soluble, which makes them especially nefarious, and they get into the water and supply. Runoff as well. And runoff, yes. And so I try to buy Italian wheat that says grown in Italy, because I know that they don't have that, but that's so interesting. So this wheat goes to Italy, gets turned into pasta, comes back, well, for example, like there's another uh, another one of their um, sort of lines of monograma is called kamut, which is like an ancient you know, Egyptian grain um, that's grown in Puglia, and they actually truck it to Aguadige and then they mill it to order, um, which is not unusual in, in you know, small production. 
bread baking or, or even pasta or pastry, but in terms of factories producing you know, large amounts of dried pasta, it's very, very unusual. So um, what they discovered is that by, by creating this uh, mixture of essentially flour and water before it's extruded through the dye, um, the flour is, is incredibly active because it's still very fresh and it produces strong, much stronger gluten net, mm -hmm. which is what makes the, the filicetti monogram specifically so uh, resilient and uh, why it has such an incredible mouthfeel and al dente texture that, that um, lasts quite quite a long time, like it's, it's, it's very forgiving and, and very resilient. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to overcook. And even if you were to overcook it, not only would it still be firm to some degree, but there's also like a very prominent sort of meaty taste yeah. that you wouldn't find in like Barilla or Dipcheco or Prince or other things. Like that is nutritious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. taste it. Completely. So interesting. Um, when you are, a, I guess, two questions. One, where do you go, or where did you go when you could all go out for dinner? Uh, <laughs> for pasta. For pasta. Um, well, I used to love my friend uh, Sarah Jenkins' uh, pasta place called Porcina, yeah. which sadly just closed in the last uh, month or two. Um, I also like Sal and Andrew's place, Hot uh, Creamy. Okay, yeah. Um, what else? They're also so, really nice there. I, we've gone there with Henry before. Yeah. They're like so nice to us as a family, which yeah. they shouldn't be. I mean, we just walking off yeah. the street. It's like, it's a good thing to get hospital. Uh, there, 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 there are plenty of places that, that offer quality pasta experiences in this town. Um, where do you but go? But I, I prefer to, to cook it myself. So. When you're in Italy, where do you go? Uh, I haven't been very recently. Um, but I love to go to, you know, Graniano and Where is that? Uh, in, in Naples, okay. like near, between Pompeii and Sorrento, so cool. where a lot of uh, really high quality, they're, they're very, very well known for high quality. I hope Europe lets us back in in the future. Yeah, without a, a two-week quarantine on the other <laughs> side. Who's <laughs> got a month to sit here for <laughs> um, one thing that I also want to make sure we we talk a little bit about because I think it's it's so fascinating when you and I first started this conversation, your relationship with wine. So when I when we met, it was this particular night, and and it lasted many hours into this fascinating conversation on Cacio e Pepe, and then. I think a few years later when I saw you, you were not drinking at the time. Right. I, I quit for five years. Quit drinking for five years. Can you tell... And smoking as well. And smoking as well. Both of which I enjoy tremendously. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you stop? Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't managing it particularly well. And I thought that... Uh, and I had known that for quite some time. And I, um, I only assumed that if I stopped, uh, you know, drinking and smoking, obviously my health would improve, but also not that I had any underlying health issues, but 
just in general. And then uh, I imagine that sort of the pieces of my life start to uh, form and better and more constructive and productive way. And I thought that, you know, this was the thing that was really holding me back. Um, and I was actually quite unhappy most of the five years that I wasn't drinking, not because I was drinking, but because of the social aspect uh, that's all wrapped up into drinking and just being social in general. It's so social. And uh, not for everybody, but for me it always was. Um, so uh, after five years, I just sort of became fed up and was like, you know, maybe I can manage this now in a, in a different way. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting this is any part of strategy for people that are, are have suffered from substance abuse problems, but I do feel like I am a happier person when I am able to drink. I'm not saying that I, I necessarily drink responsibly all the time, because I don't. But unfortunately, I did, for, for me, I did not find that abstaining from drinking helped me in my personal or professional life in any way. I didn't become more motivated, I didn't become more like, uh, like clear thinking or, or any of the things that I would hope. Uh, mostly I just became more antisocial and uh, increasingly less happy. So I stopped not drinking. Thank you so much for sharing this because I, I do feel like there's there's so much sort of assumption that it is this maligned habit whereas for me right the thing that it, it that wine is so good at is bringing people together and it was well, i mean i drank in a very different way um and i drink less now you're just not as thirsty <laughs> you're also very tall and i would say robert robert gets very thirsty as well he can manage it in a way that i that i can't but um yeah, but I, I just think that that's thank you so much for sharing that because I think there's there's um yeah it, just your your thought process through that and then yeah. your dedication. I thought it was going to be some sort of epiphany and I would have, would have like conquered life once I stopped drinking, but that was not the case at all. It's almost like running a marathon. Like you ran the marathon for five years. You did this thing that you decided you were going to do, and then yeah. and then you and then you reflected and said this. Yeah. This actually did not help me achieve the things that I exactly thought happened. it would. Exactly. It's so fascinating. Um, thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Um, all right. So at Moby's, so last time that I had your food was probably a month ago, I'm going to say, and it was this amazing barbecue that you had organized at Moby's with the San Pellegrino, or they had helped sponsor it. Yeah, and it was so much fun, and it was delicious. I'm glad you it. It, was, no, it was this perfect night. It was one it was night. A gorgeous night. It was a gorgeous night in August, yep. and it was it was a, an Abruzzo style yeah. barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this mountain culture in Abruzzo um, that focuses on this thing called uh, rostaccini or um, spiadini, okay. 
which is uh, deeply rooted in sort of the traditional shepherd culture. So these are essentially sheep herders that, um, that they graze their, their herds of sheep in the mountains during the spring and summer. And they feast on, you know, grasses and wild herbs and flowers and so on and so forth. And then as the weather gets cooler, they go on this trek called the Transumanza, where they're led basically from the mountains down to the seaside, where they either winter or are slaughtered along the way or become salumi and work there and so on and so forth. Um, and then in the mountains of Abruzzo, there's this very rich culture of these ristoro, meaning restorative um, shacks that um, sell these like often like sheep sticks um, and then like, uh, like young pecorino it's skewers you have like, young pecorino and like table wine and like saltless bread and they have these sort of troughs of hardwood charcoal that you can basically go into the restoral, which is like a deli. You buy these things and you go outside and they have these, um, these troughs and you basically just grow your own food and you can nibble on the sticks with the bread and the cheese and the wine. That's like a whole meal. Um, so I sort of tried to adapt the uh, exuberance of that culture into something that was Americans and East Hampton could relate to. We met with varying degrees of success, what? but it was fun. It was also nice to have sort of a dose of a dose of something different with it. With it. obviously, your food is always so thoughtful and delicious, but to have this sort of introduction to a new tradition and a new. Um, yeah, which, which I think is is rarer and rarer yeah, in supermarket yeah. culture. I mean, I, I would I would certainly say that the, you know there are Asian cultures that probably do you know kushiyaki and yakitori being an example of this style of skewer culture that's probably better, but um, that just became a place to find. Will you talk about where you find inspiration? I mean, it's impossible to say. It can kind of come from anywhere. It could be a dream. It could be walking down the street. It could be a conversation with somebody. It could be Instagram or the internet or just some light bulb. And then you start down this rabbit hole of research of certain seasons and proximity. Is it fair to say that you love research? And you, you I do. Me. I mean, I, I just, I just love being inspired enough by something to want to do the research, and and, I, and I'm not always in that you know frame of mind. But sometimes when I am, it just takes over. I want to share one memory, and it was the first time that you and I have ever, it was actually the only time I think you had, I had ever participated in an event together, and it was at the James Beard house in either 2013 or 2014, and you uh, participated along with 
couple other chefs and I got to do the wine pairing and we made this dish and it was the 100 year, I believe it was the 100 year lasagna, but then on top of this 100 year lasagna, we made doves out of bread dough and the doves were flying around through the, they were all attached. So it was almost like, like the sort of blackbirds in a pie. And yeah. I, I, I don't, but it was the moment for me where, of course, I, I, I had always, I would always knew your reputation and, and had tried your food, but it was this, it was very otherworldly. It's not often or really ever anymore that you see anything like this where you had just, from your imagination, had created these birds. Well, I've always enjoyed doing research, you know, going, going backwards and seeing what humanity has done in the past and how well they've done it. I mean, there's been people that have been monkishly committed to both of our professions mm -hmm. for thousands of years. So there's a lot of content there. Yes. And you don't necessarily need to be looking forward. And there's so much rich history behind us. Yes. That can be reinterpreted or rediscovered. Yes. Um, so on and so forth. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jordan. I have one more question, uh, which I always ask at the end of every episode. What is bringing you joy right now? Um, well, honestly, uh, it, it's strange, but, uh, you know, I've been a city slicker for, this will be my 20th year in Manhattan, and I very, very rarely, if ever, leave. Like, I don't take a lot of time off. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I don't do a lot of uh, you know things for myself, but uh, since being in COVID, I've been working out in East Hampton, and uh, fortunately, where I live, sort of the nicest beach that I know of is the closest one to me. <laughs> so I like to ride my bike to the beach and just kind of sit and make waves. Um, you know, I spent a lot of formative years in. Cape Cod, so I do have some of that in me, but I have sort of rediscovered the beauty of that uh, part of nature. And uh, even being in the city today feels sort of weird to me. Um, so, so yeah. Thank you so much to, to all of our listeners. You can follow Mark at uh, Mark R. Ladner. Um, on Instagram, and you can go and taste his food at Moby's when you're in East Hampton, where it's right on that Amagansett border. Um, and it is, it really is always a study in excellence and quality. Um, and obviously, deliciousness is subjective, but uh, a lot of people subjectively <laughs> think your food has been very delicious for a very long time. Thank you very much. Mike, thank you so much. Yeah.